Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Jim Cramer and David Faber at the New York Stock Exchange. A big hour is on deck. Live interviews with the CEOs of AMD, Dow Inc., and Starbucks as futures look to extend the market bounce. Earnings from Apple, Boeing, Starbucks, McDonald's all roll in. The number of coronavirus cases has now exceeded that of SARS. And, of course, a Fed statement at 2 o'clock. Europe's pretty steady and oil's almost back to 54. Our roadmap begins with the corporate earnings parade. 44 S&P years today, including AT&T. Dow, GE, and Boeing notching its first full-year loss in more than 20 years. Shares of Apple are higher ahead of the open. A big driver, an 8% uptick in quarterly iPhone sales. And the coronavirus corporate impact. Starbucks is closing more than 2,000 stores in China and warning the outbreak will hit its full-year results. As we said, Kevin Johnson will join us first on CNBC later this hour. And shares of AMD are sinking more than 4% ahead of the open on weaker-than-expected quarterly revenue forecast. CEO Lisa Su is going to join us exclusively in just a few minutes. So we're going to start with a pair of Dow components. Apple's on track to hit a new all-time high after a quarterly beat. Record revenues helped by sales of iPhones, wearables, and apps. Boeing also rising in the pre-market despite, as we said, the first annual loss since 97, estimating the total cost of the max grounding at $18.6 billion, guys. And as we know, uh, Calhoun with LeBeau earlier on Squawk Box, uh, talking about how the company's fallen short on transparency and in as they try to get reinstatement on the max, we're not going to market our way out of this issue. Oh, what a great uh, interview. What I think is happening at Boeing is they're saying, one, uh, our primary concern is safety. And after we're concerned with that, it's safety and then safety. And this is a different Boeing. I'm not saying that previous Boeing didn't care about safety. I'm saying that previous Boeing, I felt, did try to market their way out of it. That's a very good term. Uh, the fact that Boeing can put even a, a cost on this, even though it's high, uh, is encouraging. The fact that it will be the safest plane because of the testing is encouraging. That the pilots might want to use it is encouraging. That the backlog has not gone down. I mean, that is incredible. You would think with the decline in value of the planes in the, in the so-called third market that the backlog would go down. It hasn't. So um, I was encouraged. That's why the stock's up, even though the loss, the loss is uh, um, not as important nearly as the backlog, I think, which is pretty strong. Strong as it can be. Uh, LeBeau asked about that uh, $18.6 billion. Says it basically it underlines their confidence in meeting the target for reinstatement. Yes. Here's what Calhoun said about max safety in particular. I believe in this airplane. I believe in the engineering of it. I believe in all the fundamentals. Um, and we can get this exactly right. And as I said before, if we didn't believe, or if anybody in this process didn't believe we were going to field an airplane that's safer than any airplane in the sky, we wouldn't do it. Uh, sort of a parallel storyline is the production cuts to the 787, now going to 12 a month. Being conservative there, I think that makes sense. Uh, again, what I like is, is that Boeing is not certain 
it's just a pleasure to hear a company that's not certain about things that are not certain. Uh, and so, uh, in particular, just going back to the uh, 737 MAX, the fact that they say it's not in their hands is so refreshing. Uh, it's in the hands of the authorities. The authorities can't be gamed. Uh, the authorities know the importance of, of the way they're approaching it. Uh, remember, they're recommending everybody take a sim- you know do a simulation. That's because uh, there are lots of countries where they don't have 3,000 hours ahead. You know, you have a 3,000-hour uh, Southwest air pilot, and he may not want to have a simulation. Right. But Boeing is selling this thing to everywhere. And uh, the lack of... Uh, 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 of recognition of the previous Boeing, so to speak, of the fact that not all pilots are created equal was a travesty. And that travesty is over. By the way, Textron's out today saying they're going to increase the number of MAX simulators that they're making uh, as demand for those simulators is going to be obviously toward around well, the world. Yeah, that's, really, really I mean, that's like demand for Purell and yeah. demand for mass. Yeah. You can't get enough of it. On Sorry, Apple, David. I know you're the... You know. On Apple, Jim, before we get to Lisa yeah. Sue, uh, a lot of talk about the guidance range, um, the miss on services. Uh, what are you, how, how are you getting your arms around that today? You know what I think that, the, that people can't get their arms around is, is the fact that the leverage of the phone. I mean, I don't think anyone expected the phone to be big. And uh, what you really had was this narrative which just said, hey, listen, don't worry about the phone growth. Don't look behind that curtain. What matters is services. Services was, was fine, and there's a lot of things in services that are in the pipe. But I don't think anyone expected the level of growth, particularly the level of growth in China of all places. Where, uh, it's back to being the urban phone of choice. The uh, 11, uh, when I spoke with, uh, with Josh about the 11, the 11 is battery life. The 11 is phone. The 11 took everybody by surprise. I, I think the analysts didn't want to admit it. The analysts are still focused on, hey, listen, we, 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 we were talking services, and, and it was only 16. We were looking for 17. Because no one thought the phone was going to be the driver, because no one thought that there was anything new about the 11, because everyone thinks that Tim Cook has never come up with anything that is really special. Now, I think this was the quarter where people just said, you know what, we are so wrong about that. The idea that the company's best times are behind them is stupid and dumb as wood, and this company has got everything. Wearables. There it is on the screen there, of course, what Cook had to say about what has been behind that popularity of the phone. Yeah. In terms of, as you just said, also price, too. Accessories. Um, But they also benefited from the 10 not being... A particularly okay, so the, popular. Well, the 10 surprised us in the downside. Yeah. The 11, they never came with the 11 and told you all these things. The 11 sold itself. I mean, Tim Cook's talking about people doing movies on the 11. He's got something at his place. I mean, I, I don't know what you've done on the 11. Have you sent Tim anything? I, I've still got the 8. Oh, well, God, you know, wake up and well, smell the coffee. We're going to do stop. Starbucks later. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're right about the, sell, the, the street, though, Jim. A lot of crow eating. Maxim today, upgrades to hold. Uh, How about that they, clown? Who, I'm sorry. They, I'm they went to chill. sell I'm in November chill. because of survey data that argued that seasonality would play, uh, that iPhone would be down five, and none of that has happened. No. It, it, you know, what's incredibly encouraging is I was pressing Tim that's Tim Cook, the CEO. I'm aware. I, was, I was pressing Tim on the idea, what about Apple TV? And he says, not, well, it's Josh, too, not a hobby. Not a hobby. I mean, look out. How about the car? We, we're going to hear from uh, Wilford, uh, the Sir Wilford Frost. He's, he's, he's with Goldman. You're going to hear that the, the card uh, yeah, is very big. You know, but right yeah. now, David, I'm switching. You got you to move on to Lisa Sue. We'll get back to the we Apple got, numbers. We got the plane stacked up. We got the Mac stacked up. It is up worth here. noting the Apple numbers are just staggering in terms of the Thank you. That, yeah. that company. You have a trillion-dollar company with an upside surprise. Are we kidding? $22 billion in net income. But 
Lisa Sue now. All right. Speaking of upside surprises, there were interpreters of downside surprise yes. because people just don't understand and get their arms around the situation. Shares of AMD are sinking ahead of what was an unbelievable quarter and a great outlook. But that's because the stock's not in sync with any of the analysts. You know what we're going to do? We're going to go to Lisa Sue. Uh, AMD CEO, by the way, I met Lisa when the stock was at three and she told me to get on the AMD bus. Good call. Uh, Lisa, let's go right to it. Uh, there's a perception uh, on the conference call that gaming is slowed, the data center is slowed, that the transition is not that good. You're not going to make as much money and people are disappointed. Could you just tell me how wrong that is? <laughs> good morning, Jim, and uh, good morning, Carl and David. Good to talk to you guys. Look, uh, we had a great fourth quarter that uh, capped off a great 2019. We grew 50% uh, year on year in the quarter to our highest quarterly revenue and our highest annual revenue ever. Um, all segments grew other than uh, game consoles, which is going through a product transition. So we feel really good about how the market is. We gained share, we believe, um, in the PC market as we had a strong holiday season. Uh, we uh, grew strong double digits in the data center, and we continue on our march to grow data center revenue. So I feel really good about uh, 2019 and actually even more excited about what we have in store for 2020. Well, one of the things that I was struck by and not sure whether in a good way, look, I, you've been strengthening the balance sheet the whole way. Lisa, when is that done? You have almost no leverage. I would like to see uh, maybe some uh, more than just trying to get that balance sheet better. I, th- I think it might be mission accomplished. Maybe it's time to spend more money on something that you haven't spent on yet. You know, actually, we're really uh, pleased with what we've done with the balance sheet. You know, as you said, that was one of the things that we said, hey, we want a strong balance sheet. We're in this, um, you know, for uh, the long haul. And with that, uh, you know, cash and, and, and uh, you know, reduced debt is important. Um, I will say mission accomplished. I think as we ended the fourth quarter, uh, we took out about a billion dollars of debt in, uh, in 2019. I think from a free cash flow standpoint, we had a very, very strong um, end to the year. And now when you look forward and you look at 2020, you know, we're talking about um, substantial growth. And when you look at, you know, the full year for us, uh, you know, we are um, estimating that we're going to grow 28 to 30 percent um, for the full year of 2020. And all of our business segments will grow. That's PCs, that's gaming, and that's data center. And these are all markets where you need more high performance compute. And so we feel really good about that. Well, let's talk about share. I mean, you, you discussed uh, cloud share and you included everybody. Frankly, I was the only, the only one you left out was IBM. You even had a Chinese company. Uh, and then you have uh, a PC. I think that you were too negative on PC growth. I didn't really understand your view of PC growth in light of what HP is telling, telling us privately. So uh, where are we really in share on PC? Where are we share in cloud? And how fast are both growing? So if you look at, um, for example, uh, as we ended 2019, we believe we've grown share um, every quarter um, over the last uh, nine quarters. And, uh, you know, the share results will come out shortly. And from that standpoint, PCs are doing very well. I think as we look at the market going forward for 2020, we think there's more opportunity for us to gain share. We have um, very strong share in desktop. We're gaining share in notebook. Uh, we're gaining share in commercial notebooks, which is actually a very good market, um, you know, going forward. So, you know, again, I think PCs are a good market for us. Um, and now turning to the data center, again, you know, strong double-digit growth. Uh, we expect data center to grow uh, substantially in 2020. And so, you know, I believe that, you know, there are numerous opportunities for us to gain share in 2020. And I think the key here is for people to understand 
that, uh, you know, it is a successive, you know, progression of share growth. So these are not one quarter things, but these are, you know, over many quarters. And that's why we're so proud of how much share that we gained in 2019 when you look over, you know, year on year. Uh, is that going to stick? Because some of that obviously is our problems in manufacturing and Intel. Oh, you know, I, I think about this over the long term, Jim. You know, uh, you know, you know, companies uh, and customers don't make decisions based on you know one quarter or uh, you know what's happening you know just in the moment. I think right. what uh, we've really been focused on is building a track record, and it's a track record of execution. Um, on on the PC side, we're on our third generation of our Ryzen uh, desktops and notebooks, um, and with each generation. The PC manufacturers have actually put more new platforms. We had some great platforms at CES that we were really excited about. Um, we'll have, you know, uh, over 100 new platforms in the notebook space in, um, in 2020. And then in data center in particular, um, you know, what cloud manufacturers do is, um, you know, they try you out in the first generation and then they do more and more workloads and, and put more of their data centers um, on you in the next generation. And so these are multiple generation things. And I think we've shown um, great progress, you know, going through, uh, you know, the last couple of years and going into 2020. Total agreement. Now, uh, I think people are probably wondering if with all this positive, why the stock down? That did happen last time. Stock went from 33 down to 31 in the uh, intraday, then, of course, went up to 50. I'm wondering if some of it isn't, be- isn't because you said about the semi-custom business, which we interpret as uh, game biz, that it was a bit soft than originally anticipated. You used the word soft. It's like the duck comes down, least and everybody sells. <laughs> Can you clarify that for be- people? Yeah, absolutely. Look, first of all, gaming is a great market. Okay, let's be really clear. There are lots of people who love gaming, and that's whether you're talking about game consoles or PC gaming or cloud gaming. Now, you know, we happen to be uh, fortunate enough to be in the two largest game console manufacturers, both Sony and Microsoft. And both Sony and Microsoft have announced that they have new consoles coming out in 2020. And so when you go through product transitions, you would expect that right before the console the new consoles launch, that there's a little bit of softness in demand. And that's exactly what we're seeing. But, you know, make no mistake about it. There's a tremendous excitement around these new consoles. They have great technology, our new Zen 2 core, um, new graphics capability. And I'm really excited about what you're going to see in 2020 as it results, uh, as it pertains to gaming. Lisa, it's David. You know, Jim did ask about the balance sheet, and I just would like to come back to it. Uh, because it is something that investors focus on when a company is doing as well as yours has. I mean, leverage is, gross leverage is half a turn here, down from 1.9 times at the end of 2018. Is that an opportunity to perhaps return more to shareholders or do something that even can fuel different areas of growth? Because that does seem to be not optimizing the balance sheet. Yeah, you know, David, what I would say is, look, we've been on a journey with uh, both the uh, investments as well as the growth and the balance sheet of the company. I'm really happy with where we are. You know, I think we said that we're going to build a really, really strong company and a really strong foundation. And cash and the balance sheet are a key piece of that. Now, as we go forward, you will see us make more investments, as we should, as tech companies should. And, um, you know, we'll always look for ways to optimize the balance sheet. But in terms of... You know, when I think about the things that we prioritize first, um, we are all about growth, growth, and more growth. And the growth comes from our product portfolio and the markets that we're in. And, um, of course, we'll optimize the balance sheet. And we feel great at where we are today. 
Lisa, uh, coronavirus, uh, big picture. Uh, we've been trying to draw analogs uh, to SARS for several days now, and uh, I assume, uh, given the projections among some, we're going to get through this one way or another, but uh, how much of it is going to be noise, and how long will that noise exhaust last into 2020, do you think? Yeah, you know, Carl, that's a great question. I think we're all watching uh, the developments, um, you know, very carefully. Um, you know, certainly we would like it to be resolved uh, sooner rather than later. You know, from our standpoint, um, you know, we're taking um, you know, precautions in our facilities in China to make sure that that is, um, you know, well, uh, well protected. And, you know, we look forward to a speedy resolution. But it is something that we're watching carefully as we go through the year. Uh, at least one more thing. I just want to talk about the cloud. There's a lot of people who feel that the cloud paused, the cloud's no longer growing. We have Facebook this uh, evening. To me, it seems like that the cloud is still on course to being maybe the great, uh, other than maybe 5G, uh, the, the great secular trend of our time. Do you see it like that? I, I absolutely think cloud is um, is growing and will continue to grow. And, you know, for every conversation I have with the major cloud vendors, what they're telling me is that they want to put on as much capacity as possible. There's plenty of demand, uh, whether you're talking about, you know, the uh, traditional applications, you're talking about machine learning and AI and all of these things. So, yeah, I, I think that is, you know, not only an important trend for us in 2020, but really over the next five years. And that's why we're investing so much um, in the cloud and the, the data center space. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much for coming on, as always. And again, congratulations on the amazing turn, in particular, as David said, the balance sheet, which is rather extraordinary. Great to see you. Thank you very much. Absolutely. That's Lisa Sue, who uh, engineered maybe the greatest turnaround of our lifetime. CEO, AMD. 2016, that stock was in the twos. Yeah. That's not a, the twos. With a balance sheet from hell. Yeah. I, I still laugh when people used to say AMD exists at Intel's pleasure, right? Which was a was well, a narrative for a long time. I remember when trust problems when there were people on the board who said, "As long as AMD's alive, we don't have to worry about antitrust." Um, but it's no longer the foil. Some people would say it's well ahead of a company that no one ever dreamed it would be ahead of, which is Intel. No. That said, it is it is looking like it's going to open down. Eh, same thing as last time. You know, people want to take profits. I wouldn't be surprised if it, you know, flounders around here and then goes up later. Um, all right, let's move on to this parade of, of CEOs that we have this morning and talk a bit about Dow. That is Dow Chemical. Uh, the shares higher this morning on better than expected quarterly earnings. Uh, Dow Inc. really is what it goes by, of course. The company reporting a 27% decline in the fourth quarter operating profit. But the results do point to at least some recovery in demand as global trade tensions ease. Joining us now exclusively is the company's CEO, Jim Fitterling. Always good to have you, Jim. Um, Thanks, David. Is this a re- You're welcome. Is this a reflection of sort of an overall rebound a bit in the global economy and demand out there? Or... You know, you still have a ways to go. I don't want to sort of, and I'm sure you'll admit that as well. When I look at all the notes this morning, a slight beat amidst broad declines in commodities, not as bad as feared, and focus on execution and cash generation, still a positive. Give me your take on the quarter and how it should be viewed by your investors. Well, as I've said before, we've seen strong consumer demand that continues into 2020. Uh, Where we saw weakness was in the industrial markets, uh, North America, Western Europe, and China as well. Weakness in big-ticket items like automobiles, um, carrying over into things like appliances, and also into capital spending. Capital spending in 2019 in those big markets was off as much as half. 
And so that, that's really what softened things up on the industrial side. I think now that we've got through the phase one trade deal with China and we've got USMCA done, that'll bring a little bit of confidence back in the markets, but it's going to take some while for that to build up. Most of the weakness that you saw in earnings is based on the supply that's been added. And as you know, we had the big shale gas phenomenon here that we participated in and, and invested in. And what that's done is helped us reduce our, our operating costs through this cycle. And in our business, in every trough, you need to be lower cost and better margins. And in every peak, you need to be better than the last peak. And that's what we've been trying to do. And I think that was on display in the fourth quarter. So in addition to beating on the revenue line, the EPS and the EBITDA line, we had strong free cash flow generation. We, we generated $1.9 billion of cash. That's up $500 million. A lot of that's because as we spun out from Dow DuPont, we achieved all of our cost separations and we got to our benchmark best-in-class cost structure. Plus, we pulled $400 million out of working capital, and that's just managing the cycle. That's the business teams doing a great job of managing the cycle. Right. Uh, now, to the extent that I think you've already noted, though, conditions to date in the first quarter of this year, and obviously we're just getting started, are similar to those of what you saw in the fourth quarter of 19. Does that indicate that there's yet to sort of be a real inflection in earnings that would make a lot of these analyst consensus EBITDA numbers that are higher than at least where you seem to be tracking uh, ones that will be met? Conceptually, we feel like 2020 has a potential to be slightly better than 2019. Now, GDP rates are, are being moderated a little bit. We're about a 1.4, 1.5 times GDP company when you look at our product mix. Um, I do think as we're going into the year, we've got three of our chains that are kind of at the bottom of the cycle. We've got the ethylene, polyethylene chain, siloxanes and silicones, and our isocyanates chain, our polyurethanes business. Uh, there's exposure on isocyanates into that auto sector and into housing. There's exposure on siloxanes, obviously, into a, an awful lot of materials. So as we see that confidence pick up and that industrial demand pull, I think you'll see that tick up. The other thing that's happening in, in ethylene is typically the end of this quarter, uh, there's usually about 8% of capacity offline for turnarounds and maintenance activity. This year, we're expecting that number to be as much as 15%. So we could see, as we go into the quarter, a little bit of tightening in that chain. Not as much capacity coming on as has been historically. So I think you're looking at, uh, if we're not at the bottom, we're, we're hovering around the bottom right now. And with the 6% yield and greater than 10% free cash flow upside in the stock, you know, we feel like there's an equity upside here. It's a good entry point for somebody to get into this sector. <laughs> One of the things that I'm uh, concerned about, Jim, is, is just trying to figure out your cost structure. Uh, you've got a lot of debt on for a project that was really built for $110 oil, which is uh, Sidera. And uh, I just kind of try to get my arms around how you can cordon that off, because I figure you get the debt down, then maybe we start seeing buybacks that are more than just uh, covered dilution. Yeah, so with Sadara, we made some good progress um, in the year. And you see fourth quarter, uh, the earnings are kind of stable there in Sadara. What we're going to do is uh, we just reached agreement on the final logistics agreement with Sadara. That allows us to achieve project completion, which is, is a significant step because that's a standalone entity now. And then that allows us to remove the parent guarantees that are on that debt. And Sadara has engaged J.P. Morgan to lead them through a debt reprofiling. And so to give you an example of what that might mean to our shareholders, uh, we put in $500 million last year for our portion of the principal repayment. 
as we reprofile that debt and get that tenor stretched out and perhaps get some different uh, tables put in place there, that gives us the ability to bring that cash back in, Sadara to be cash self-sufficient, and then we can deploy that $500 million into other uses. Deleveraging will be part of it, and share buybacks could be part of it as well. Hey, Jim, one question on just regional activity. Uh, we were looking for an inflection in growth because of phase one. Now we're worried about uh, dampening effects out of the coronavirus in China. But uh, does that mean that we should look for inflections more in Europe or the United States or somewhere else? Well, I think uh, the United States and China are, are really the places that you should look. They're, they're growing the fastest. We saw 7% volume growth in Asia-Pacific in the fourth quarter. We were double digits in China, even with the phase one deal and the tariffs that were in place at, before the phase one deal was uh, reached. Now, a lot of the tariffs are still on, but the demand growth in Asia is still strong. So if Asia demand growth is 5%, we're going to be in the 7 to 7.5% type of growth rates over there. The U.S. is still strong on the consumer, but I think what we're all waiting for is automobiles and the industrial demand to pick up. I haven't seen that yet, uh, and I haven't seen a massive negative impact from the coronavirus yet, but uh, we'll watch that. We've seen some demand pull from coronavirus on things like cleaning materials for disinfectants, uh, like you would use in household cleaners, uh, non-wovens for masks and wipes and those kinds of things. And I think as you see people, you know, stay at home and use more food from the grocery store, you're going to see a pull on packaging as well. Yeah, that was curious. And that's right, where I right. want to end real quickly, Jim. You know, China's tried to reduce their use of sing uh, certain single-use plastic. Obviously, around the world, that's a continued trend. Are you seeing any weakening there in terms of single-use? So we sell primarily into uh, higher-end structures, so multi-layer pouches and those kind of things. We're not selling a lot into the t-shirt bags, the grocery bags, straws, or the ag films that they talked about. That is a trend globally. People are, are trying to deselect and move away from those materials. We're trying to work to continue to get more recycled materials. So an announcement, for example, that was made by Nestle that they're going to buy $2 billion worth of post-consumer recycled material for their packaging line. That's a great announcement because it fits with the work that we're doing to recycle more of our product lines. And we need both that demand pull and also the supply of recycled materials to solve this problem. You're going to see yeah. some continued bans. Uh, I haven't seen that back up into our demand yet, but, but we're going to work through that. Yeah, uh, well, that's a continued issue. We didn't hit on it as much as we normally right. do, Jim, right. but we know you'll come back and join us again. Thank you, though, this time as well. Always appreciate your taking some time. Jim Fitterling, Dow CEO. When we come back, Starbucks warning that fast-spreading virus outbreak will hit full-year results. Coffee chains closing more than 2,000 stores in China. Kevin Johnson is going to join us first on CNBC in a moment to discuss companies' response and the results. Futures look good. We're going to get to GE and McDonald's and Goldman and AT&T and limited brands and the Fed when we come back. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. 
For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big-picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. You're watching CNBC Squawk on the Street, live from the financial capital of the world. The opening bell in a moment on what is the busiest two days of earnings season, today and tomorrow. Uh, it's in uh, obvious uh, relief today with uh, Boeing, GE, Starbucks. We'll get to all of that tonight. It's Facebook, Microsoft, Tesla, and PayPal. We're going to await a press conference, guys, from the World Health Organization at 11 a.m. Eastern on the coronavirus, as the number of cases is now near 6,000, uh, surpassing SARS and the death toll around 130, 132. But futures look good here as we're on pace to erase a lot of the damage that was done earlier in the week. Let's get to the opening bell, the S&P 500. Down here at the big board today, it is uh, celebrating an IPO. A novice bio focused on the treatment of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. After NASDAQ has dropped therapeutics, targeting unmet needs in oncology and inflammatory diseases. So Boeing's going to help. Yeah, definitely. Uh, look... I think that we saw a Boeing that basically said, you know, we're doing everything we can. Uh, and when the authorities say that we're good, it's going to fly. Uh, as opposed to it's ready. It didn't hear that. It didn't hear it's ready. We heard that, look, we're taking some charges. We're going to have to take charges for uh, them being offline. Uh, I was very gratified to hear that no one said, you know what, we don't need this plane. The level of confidence that the airlines themselves have demonstrated by that. So, uh, I think it's it's kind of, uh, I don't want to say it takes the debt issue off the table, but you sure feel better about the balance sheet is the way I look at it. That's what I think is going on with the stock. Boeing. Um, worth mentioning, GE, as we get started here with trading, the stock is up almost 8% yeah. uh, over, uh, you know, approaching $13 a share after numbers that are being well-received, as you might expect. Total orders, $24.9 billion for the fourth quarter of 19. Revenues, $26.2 billion. Uh, the industrial profit margin, gap industrial profit margin, 6.4%. That was up 460 basis points. That does point to cost control, cost right. containment, cost cutting uh, at the company under Larry Culp. You can see it's advancing even more right now as the stock. They did reduce GE's industrial leverage, uh, guys. Um, and, you know, overall, I guess there was the sense coming into the, this year that this would be a key inflection point, 2020. And nothing dissuades anybody from that belief, uh, given these fourth quarter numbers. The idea that at least power, they've gotten their arms around it, particularly gas, which is really the important component there. They can move on to focus on renewables. Uh, these lean principles that Culp has been pushing in terms of a lean workforce, mm -hmm. the change in the culture, more transparency. Um, it seems to be coming through here, uh, at least in terms of the numbers. And what you always want to look at is... Earnings and cash, and they're getting closer. They're getting closer. Because for a long time you had these reported earnings numbers, but then right. you had a cash number that was nowhere near it. 
and that was always a tell, Jim. I mean, it's easy to say in retrospect. Yeah, when you talk to Larry Kolb, the CEO, you realize you're talking to the CEO of an industrial company. Now, I know for people at home, that sounds ridiculous. The GE must have been an industrial company. No. GE was some company that had a very bizarre method of reporting that, that was, frankly, unbelievably good at disguising and camouflaging how bad business is. So now, uh, the first, last year was a year where we got business in, uh, under control. This is a year where when you see the numbers, they're like reported numbers. You can do apples to apples to United Technologies. Right. To a, 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 to a, a Honeywell. And it shows that the company's not doing nearly as bad. You know, the, unfortunately, the strongest division besides aviation is the one they're selling to Danaher. But fortunately, uh, power is no longer black hole because power has been shrunk. And there's still lots of areas around the world, like in India, where Larry Culp just came from, where you do have a, a demand for power. Yep. This country is no longer the big driver. Uh, Alstom, that disaster seems to be gone. Seems to the, um, the Baker Hughes disaster seems to be gone. Stabilized power, right? It's not as though it's going to be growing. No, uh, in a, no, in but it's small. Way. And is something you always say they they do seem to be focused on underpromising, right? And overdelivering. Uh, aviation, of course, is still the the, the jewel. Right. Uh, what was revenues were up six percent, orders up twenty two percent, nineteen over eighteen. Right. Um, although they're they're getting hurt like everybody by the right, max. There's, they're, yes, but they do have very good service revenue, obviously from aviation. Uh, I think there's two things that I like about this quarter. One is is that I understood the financials, which I you know I, I took a year of accounting, but I've never been able to understand GEs because I never took leisure to mom accounting. And you know, Jim, I never took like, I never took folk no, I'm accounting. I'm so glad you leisure said that to because that's people always you know, nobody could understand. No, that. no, really, you couldn't. Well, that was important. Plus, the regulators couldn't. The accountants could because they were part of the uh, what I regard as being the destruction of Great American uh, Company. The SEC didn't because the SEC wasn't used to those terms either. Yeah. Even, you know, you know, but the main thing, David, that I like about this is there's a fellow. It's a fellow who was uh, approaching this thing as Moby Dick. And that man's name was Tusa. And so you're looking for Tusa capitulation here? He's Captain Ahab. He's fictional. I like facts. He's, he's on the wrong side of this now. Yes, he's on the wrong side of history. Was, well, it was a call that made his career, has made right. him the most influential industrials analyst. Yeah. Uh, Elaine Gazzarelli, what do you think there? Um, who do you think? Uh, uh, rational exuberance? Yeah. How, who do we put him in with, with in uh, now? What, what about, um, what was the lady you called Citigroup back in the crisis? Meredith? Yeah, Meredith. Meredith Whitney. Yeah. Meredith Whitney. We may have that the- one. We may have to put him in that pantheon of people who stayed too long. But it's Maybe okay. Maybe forgiven. we get what's in, in vogue right these days, which is a reiteration and a price target increase, like on Tesla today right. out of B of A. Reiterate sell, but your target goes up to 350 <laughs> Yeah. That's, 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 we get one of those see, every day. I remember yeah. I studied that. I was a hedge fund manager for a long time, and I was at Goldman for a long time. We had a term for that. Bad. Bad. Yeah, uh, that's bad. A, that's a, I think that's Just a very descriptive bad. term. Poor. I don't want to overamp. Poor is yeah. also a good one. Ill-advised. Now, the one that I've developed since I've become Jimmy Chill is suboptimal. Well, you had that. You What's had that the Jimmy Chill? Jimmy Chill. But maybe you're using it. Well, now I'm using it more. Um, you know, AT&T, guys, I'm not sure how you describe it. I don't think you could say suboptimal, although it's not getting no. a particularly positive response in the market. Stock is down about a half a percent. They reduced their debt load by $20.3 billion. Listen, wireless is growing. Um, they had roughly 2% wireless service revenue growth. Um, they lost 945,000 subs in terms of DirecTV. 
Um, they lost another 200,000 plus for this AT&T, the old DirecTV Now, remember the OTT product they had. But that is down, uh, or I should say that is better than the last quarter where they did tell us. And remember, I sat down with John Stanky, of course, with the, when they right. introduced us to what HBO Max was going to be. Uh, and they'd indicated uh, that subs there had um, bottomed in terms of losses. Now, that said, you're still losing almost a million a, a, a quarter. That's a lot. They have 19.5 million premium right. TV subscribers. Um, but uh, I talked to John Stevens, the company's CFO, prior to the uh, call. Um, no, I talked to John Stevens prior to the call. And, uh, you know, he talked about the fact that they, uh, the license revenue they gave up in terms of Warner because of HBO Max, $1.2 billion. Going forward, that's still going to be $1.5 to $2 billion. They've told us that already. They, he did indicate they've seen peak losses at DirecTV. Um, uh, and they turned things around to some extent uh, in Mexico in terms of their wireless business. Um, they had a million net ads in wireless. And when you look at the balance sheet overall, uh, guys, they're talking about continuing to buy back stock. They've got a dividend payout ratio that's in the low 50s, actually below 50% this quarter. And their right. cash flow number came in at $29 billion, which was above their own uh, previous sort of targets, right. all of which they're at least hitting in terms of co- taking costs out and hitting those cash flow numbers. Yeah, I, I, I agree. That's good analysis because people see the 900,000, they freak out. It's better than expected. Isn't that crazy? I mean, it's bad. What a world. You know the ecosystem is blown bad. up. It's bad. It's bad. But, uh, right. but it's getting better. All right. Hey, now, here's a stock uh, and a company. Here's a great company that was hurt because of Corona. And we're going to go over that. It's Starbucks. It's uh, falling at the beginning of the day, despite, I'd say, an extraordinary earnings beat, including uh, a number that I never thought, U.S. comps of 6%. You go back a few years, we thought that was not possible. So let's bring in uh, Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson on uh, from Seattle. Kevin, there's a key line in your comps call. And the conference is the line is, you would have taken numbers up if it were not for the obvious. So could you walk us through what could have been and what was? Well, Jim, good morning. Uh, you know, we just, we just came off of uh, one of the strongest holiday quarters in the history of Starbucks. And if you look at what we uh, delivered in this last quarter, certainly a 5% growth in same-store sales globally, led by our U.S. U.S. grew 6% comp with 3% growth in uh, customer cages, in traffic. Uh, China grew 3% in uh, same-store comparable last quarter with 1% growth in traffic. So, you know, our retail business is really firing on all cylinders. We grew net new stores by 6%. Our channels business grew 5%. You put that all together, you know, we had one of the strongest holiday quarters in the history of the company. Uh, You know, customer confidence uh, and customer connection scores are at an all-time high. Uh, Beverage innovation accounted for five points of that six-point comp growth in the U.S., and we grew our digital uh, active rewards members by 16% to 18.9 million. So coming off of Q1, you know, that momentum just continues to build. Now, as you point out, we're now managing a very dynamic situation in China related to the coronavirus. And, uh, you know, we've been in China for 20 years. We realize that this is a temporary uh, issue that we've got to deal with. And we're doing it responsibly. We're doing it by uh, prioritizing the health and well-being of our Starbucks partners. And we're working closely with uh, local uh, health officials and government 
to help ensure that they're able to contain uh, the virus and that we can get through this quickly and, uh, and get on with it. But coming off a very, very powerful quarter, you know, we had a beat and uh, we were intending to raise, but given uh, the coronavirus, we felt it was in the best interest to really better understand the implications of that. And as we do, we're going to be transparent with our investors. Right. I don't mean to dwell on coronavirus, but obviously America's dwelling on it. Uh, you, you closed half your stores in China. One, why not close all the stores? Because you care tremendously about not just the workers, the baristas, but the families. And two, you've got an incredible delivery system. Why not just say, you know what, our stores are closed, but we're going to deliver it to you because we're worried about Corona? Well, certainly, Jim, we've closed over half of our stores in China, and it is a very dynamic situation. We look at that each and every day. I mean, you know, certain, certainly some of the stores we normally close over Chinese New Year's. Uh, and then certainly in Hubei province, uh, where Wuhan is, kind of the, the center of this uh, coronavirus, you know, that entire province is, is basically closed down. But then we've been very responsible and thoughtful in working uh, with local health officials and governments. And if there's stores, you know, perhaps tourist uh, uh, gatherings or near universities or hospitals, we've closed those stores. And, of course, we do have our mobile order for pickup or delivery in China. And, uh, you know, just last quarter, for example... 16% uh, of uh, our sales in China was through mobile ordering, and 9% uh, of that was for delivery. So we do have delivery available. And, uh, and look, we're dealing with this on a daily basis. And so when, when there's a concern, we will close stores, and uh, we're going to do it responsibly and thoughtfully. Hey, Kevin, got to ask you about uh, cold beverage, which basically led all of your day parts in all of your regions in the middle of winter. I just wonder, are there implications for kitchen engineering and margins and service time? Well, you know, this, in many ways, the, the cold beverage uh, phenomenon is one that really builds on our core platforms. You know, think about this. this. A lot of this is cold brew and nitro cold brew that we put into our stores. And then uh, the way we've complemented that with, uh, you know, things like Irish cream cold brew. Uh, you know, and that really is, is what's driving it. So, uh, you know, in many ways, the fact that we've deployed uh, nitro to all of our stores in the U.S., that's unlocking cold, uh, cold growth. But it's, it's around our core coffee and espresso beverage platforms, uh, which is a good thing. And so we're very pleased with, with the reception to the entire beverage portfolio. And, uh, and I think that is a key, uh, key driver of why we're seeing customer occasions uh, increase and traffic growing to our stores. I do think, uh, Kevin, that when I look at uh, what you're doing, you talked about innovation. Uh, at Starbucks today, in terms of the clock, in terms of when you're using their physical plant, versus a few years ago when you first took over, there was really this kind of two to five period where it was dead weight loss. You've changed that with innovation, haven't you? Well, you know, we've, we've really transformed the way we drive innovation at Starbucks. And, you know, fundamentally, I've tried to take all of the lessons I learned of 32 years in the tech industry with how you innovate and constantly drive uh, uh, innovation that's relevant to your customers, innovation that inspires our partners, and innovation that's meaningful to our business. So we've transformed. We've gone from long cycle innovation methodologies to a mantra of going from idea to action in 100 days and then learn and adapt. And we see that across beverage, across digital, across store design, uh, and it's, it's paying off for us. <clears throat> uh, uh, Kevin, you know uh, from my Twitter file, I have to ask this. Uh, it's more than anecdotal. It's empirical. Uh, the franchises that, that you have had to deal with, and I know you like, I've read the book, uh, HMS, 
uh, in airports suboptimal, okay? It is no longer just a, you know what, Jim, they're absolutely great. It's terrible. There's so many of them that are understaffed, so many of them that are cavalier. They are not up to your standards, Kevin. And what are you going to do about a partner who is, and I don't want to hear that they're up to your standards because I have too much evidence empirically that that's not true. How can you get that mess under control? Well, first of all, Jim, I'll comment that the whole dynamic in airports has changed dramatically over the last uh, five to seven years. And certainly we've had a long-term partnership with HMS Host. And, uh, you know, the, the, the volume of, of traffic that we saw to our Starbucks stores in airports over this holiday season was phenomenal. So it's clear. We've got to, we've got to reinvent and rethink how we do this. Now, HMS Host has been a long-term partner. They've had exclusivity uh, in these airports. Going forward, HMS Host will continue to be a partner. But we are, we are moving to a model where they don't, don't have exclusivity. And that's going to give oh, us amen. more opportunity to innovate and try different things. For example, we're working on some ideas even with, pop, with pop-ups, pop-up stores in airports that could move depending on time of day and where gate arrivals and gate departures are taking place. So HMS Host is going to continue to be a partner, but they, they, they will be in a model where, where they are not exclusive, which gives us a range of options to better serve our customers. Oh, that's so good. It had to happen. I love it. Go to the airport, get my coffee. Okay. Kevin, uh, last week you announced some plans to become more resource positive, uh, eliminating waste, uh, storing more carbon than you emit. I was amazed at this statistic that adding whipped cream to Starbucks drinks emits 50 times the greenhouse gases of the company's private jet. So I guess the question is how far you're going to take this effort into what consumers may want on their coffee. Well, first of all, comment, we, we have been focused on sustainability for the last decade. But I think we realize that we've been doing it episodically on different parts of our business. So about a year ago, we made a decision that we want to really take a holistic look at our footprint as it relates to carbon, water, and waste. And we, we engaged some of the world's experts. Uh, Bill McDonough is an example. Paul Pullman was an advisor to me. And we sat down and we did this benchmark of of our entire footprint. And we decided to set a very bold, multi-decade aspiration to become a resource-positive company, a company that gives more than we take from the planet. Now, uh, when you think about becoming climate-positive and water-positive and waste-positive, that is, over over the next few decades, going to really redefine Starbucks. And we've outlined a set of strategies and things to get us started. We've set some, some goals and some targets for 2030. Uh, but we believe, through, through the research, look, our customers want this. You know, 30% of the world's population right. is Gen Z, and this is what they want. Our Starbucks partners want this. So we are embarking uh, on a journey. Uh, we know this journey will be hard. We're going to have to solve a lot of problems that nobody's solved yet today. It won't be linear, but we are going to do this. We're going to do it in partnership with others, and we're going to be thoughtful, and uh, we're, going to bring, we're going to bring the market along with us. But uh, this but is something I, that, know, Kevin, uh, as we approach Kevin, the 50th anniversary of Starbucks, we'll redefine the company. Yeah, I listen, it sounds great, but, I mean, you're talking about changing customer behavior in such a significant way. I mean, well, you know, the single use of your product is enormous, obviously. You look outside at any garbage can outside of Starbucks, and it's filled up to the top, if not overflowing, unfortunately, here in New York. You really think you can change behaviors mm-hmm. to the extent that people will, for example, bring in their own thermos, and that will become more the rule than the exception? 
Well, look, there's a, there's a variety of things that will need to happen. I think certainly when it, when it is for a cup that is for takeaway, part of what we have to understand is how to reinvent those cups so that they're compostable and recyclable and that we work to ensure that there's a waste management facility that actually does the recycling. Uh, but we also are going to really focus on reusables. And you look at some markets in Korea, for example, they're now at about 50% reusable cups. And, uh, you know, so if, if a customer uh, consumes their beverage in the store, maybe it's a ceramic cup. In other cases, uh, you know, we're going to focus on reusables. But these are the kinds of problems that we have to solve. And part of it will be uh, helping uh, adapt consumer behavior. You just take, for example, on beverages. Uh, roughly 15% uh, of, our, of our beverages in our stores in the U.S. now are alternative milks, plant-based milks. And that number continues to grow. Those are examples of things that we're going to have to uh, we're going to have to influence and take customers and partners on this journey with us. But we believe that this is something that the world wants and needs, and we're going to do it thoughtfully. We're going to do it responsibly. We're going to do it consistent with our brand, and we think we can have a significant impact by bringing others on this journey with us. All right, I know you're doing some great plant-based stuff too, but Ken, let me ask you: uh, Are you in touch with the Chinese, with the PRC, Chinese government? What are they telling you, and do you trust them? Well, look, uh, we've, we've been in China for 20 years, uh, over 20 years now, Jim. And so, yes, we have a relationship with government officials, central government, provincial government, local government, and uh, we're, we're connected, we're communicating with them on a regular basis. You know, certainly as they are working to, to contain coronavirus, we're playing a, a responsible, constructive role in helping them do that, you know, simply by just being aware of where we need to close stores and how we can also help, uh, you know, in areas where we have stores open. Uh, to ensure that, that uh, you know, that this, this virus is being contained. Um, and so, you know, this, this is a temporary issue. And don't be confused. We've been in China over 20 years, and I am still so optimistic about the long-term growth potential that China presents. We will navigate this. We're going to do it true to our mission and our values. And we're going to get through it, and we're going to be stronger for it. And guess what? Next year, we're going to get to comp over this. So uh, this does not change our outlook for our long-term double-digit growth at scale uh, earnings model. All right, Kevin, thank you for never ducking us. I know this is a tough quarter to try to forecast, but holy cow, I think you're very as transparent as possible. As Kevin Johnson, he's president and CEO of Starbucks. Thanks, Let's get to Phil LeBeau this morning. Got a news alert related to the coronavirus. Phil, good morning once again. Good morning, Carl. American Airlines has announced that it is going to be canceling some of its flights between the U.S. and China. We're talking about the flights between LAX and Shanghai and Beijing. This takes effect on February 9th, and it runs all the way through March 27th. Now, American will still be doing flights into Hong Kong out of L.A. and still be doing flights into Beijing, Shanghai and Hong Kong out of Dallas. But like United announcing yesterday that it's going to be canceling some flights, American now doing the same thing. And guys... This is all because they've had a huge drop-off in the number of people who are getting on these flights. And at some point, you make the decision, look, if we only have 25% of the plane full, we're not going to fly. And that's what they're going to do starting on February 9th all the way through March 27th between L.A., Shanghai, and Beijing. Guys, back to you. All right, some reports on the tape here, Phil, that Lufthansa uh, will do the same. But we've already got uh, Air Canada, Cathay, British Air, uh, Lion Air, Seoul Air all suspending service to China. Yeah. Thanks, Phil. Our Phil LeBeau. You bet. Uh, we're off the initial highs here. Dow's up 122. Uh, Dow to get back to break even for the week. Uh, I'll get you this here really quick. Um, 28,000. 
989.73 to wipe out the week's losses. As a reminder, you can always watch us live on the go on the CNBC app. Squawk of the Streets back in a moment. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. It's time for Jim to stop trading. With Wynn uh, having too much Macau, with Las Vegas Sands being really Las Vegas Macau, looking for a gambling stock? Uh, well, how about Penn National Gaming? It's up big. Why is it up big? Well, not just because business is good, but because they just uh, gave a uh, big stake of Barstool they bought. And they valued Barstool at uh, $450 million. This is Portnoy. I've had one bite. By the way, that's a Turn, Turning Group owns 36%. Yeah, they're, they're a very big winner. They're and very now, big winner. National owns 36%. As you point out, they just paid $163 million in cash and convertible preferred stock for it. Right. Well, uh, and, But I thought they did pizza reviews. Was, I'm not well, confused. Well, I'll tell you, why don't, I, why don't I ask Portnoy tonight when I have him on? Oh, it is that guy, right? Yeah. 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 What do you mean it is that guy? David Portnoy is uh, one of the huge, smartest guys in the world. He's is what he is. rich. Yeah. That's what he's doing. Well, nothing the matter with him being rich. He's brilliant. I don't know. He's also a Patriots fan. Sorry. We never got to McDonald's. I'm sure you'll cover a lot of that tonight. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know what? We never got to Yum doing, um, uh, you know, faux chicken, so to speak, beyond chicken, which is blunting the uh, reaction of Tim Hortons being out. McDonald's was great. I don't know why it was down. Uh, Kempinski doing some good things there. Yeah. Best annual comp since 06. Jeez, are a lot of good numbers. And you know what? It's also transparent. <laughs> go Sick of that the, yet? Going to go over the Goldman Investor Day now? They're not transparent enough. No? Just kidding. He's completely transparent. He's like like taking his clothes off for heaven's sake. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley High Performance Sofas and Recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.